1: CMS is expected to release its final rule on provider-based clinics in early November. The proposed changes are likely to impact reimbursement and compliance. Reporting this developing story is author, educator, and consultant Dwayne Abbey. Also on today's Monitor Monday, healthcare attorney David Glazer has another example of a risky business. What plans do you have to ensure the proper discharge of homeless patients? Marvin Mitchell is standing by with a report from California. Monitor Monday senior correspondent Nancy Beckley has the latest hot topics and the Monitor Monday listener survey. Well, we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday Rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Services. Here now making his Monday
2: Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Good morning, all. I'm sure you've all heard me rant about observation rates. And I'm sure at least half of you have been told that your observation rate is too high and that you need to fix it. You're above the benchmark rate is what you probably heard. But of course there is no benchmark rate, nor is there a standard way to even measure hospitals' observation rates. Well, I've decided to add a new measure to my rant list, which I think is even more understood, and that is length of stay. Our length of stay is too long, you need to fix it. Dr. Smith's length of stay is too long, he needs to fix it. Why is that pneumonia patient still here? The LOS is four days and they're still here on day five. I bet every one of you have heard some version of one of those phrases but let's break it down. First, what are we measuring? What constitutes a patient's length of stay? Where is your hospital's calculator pulling its data? Is it the date the patient registered in the ED, the date the inpatient admission was ordered? Well, length of stay is generally calculated based on their location and status at midnight. So what is the length of a st- length of stay for a patient who comes in the ED late on Monday night, it's an order for observation placed early Tuesday morning, Is admitted as an inpatient on Wednesday and then goes home on Friday? Is it four days since the patient was in the ED for four midnights uh, or in the hospital? Is it three days since that first midnight was in the ED and doesn't count? Or is it two days since that's the number of inpatient days? If I was a doctor who wanted to make their length of stay look really good, I'd put every patient in observation for a couple days before agreeing to write an admission order. And what do we use as a comparison? Well, we often use the Medicare-published geometric mean length of stay for every DRG as a standard. But how does Medicare calculate that? Well, they obviously have to take it from the claims data, and claims data has um, fields for the start of care, the admission date, and the end of care. But the start of care will also include any services provided in the three-day payment window. So if that date is used, it may artificially add days. And if it uses the inpatient admission dates, it will not account for any hospital days spent when the patient was in observation and will be setting unrealistic goals. Under that paradigm, an admission with a one-day observation and two days of inpatient would underestimate the true length of stay by a third, driving doctors to hit an artificially low target. I dislike length of stay also because it doesn't correlate directly with cost. Is it a doctor with a 3.8-day length of stay and an average cost of $10,000 per admission really better than a doctor with a 4.3-day length of stay and an average cost of $8,000? I don't think so. I'm really out of time, but I am out of thoughts. But you can expect to hear a lot more from me in coming weeks about this topic. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice
1: President of R1 Physician Advisory Services, Ronald Hirsch, M.D. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. And now, with the latest Hot Topics and the Monitor Monday Listener Survey, is Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley. Good morning, Nancy.
3: Good morning, Chuck. And I have some good news to report from our listeners who have been paying very close attention to my series on Targeted Probe and Educate. Um, several listeners emailed me with their good news updates. One therapy provider reported they had. 100% passing rate on 40 claims on a selected CPT code. Another therapy provider reported 100% success on the new therapy evaluation codes. And another therapy provider uh, uh, reported that they had been noted by an underpayment by their MAC that reviewed it. However, that resulted in an error rate that because they were underpaid. The therapy providers connected back and said, hey, we weren't underpaid. We didn't have the time to support the code. So the error was corrected, and they came back with another 100% uh, review on that one. And then a DME provider noted that they had passed round one um, on a knee orthosis code with less than 30% error rate. So pretty good news, and it appears that our Monitor Monday listeners are paying close attention to this. So I'd like to continue my series with a targeted probe and educate progress update related to home health. And this has been reported by the CGS MAC for home health and hospice, which is the J15 MAC. And they did 15 probes, and providers that were compliant after round one were three. Providers non-compliant after round one were 12. And they actually had two people that did not give a response to an ADR, which, you know, that means they're just um, out of luck right there. So within respect to the home health risk category, I know some of our listeners had asked last week during Q&A, which we did not have time to get to, they asked what constitutes an error rate and what is minor, moderate, or significant. On the CGS audit, the reported results include that a minor error rate they classified as 0 to 25%, a moderate error rate being 26 to 50% and a significant error rate being 51 to 100%. In the um, home health risk category, the top denial reasons, and they, they listed five, the face to face missing or incomplete or untimely, the face to face that's required. Number two reason with therapy visits were not medically necessary. Number three was the initial certification was invalid. Number four, top reason with skilled nursing was not medically necessary. And number five, the plan of care was missing or invalid. Um, and so these providers that were found to be noncompliant at the completion of round one with CGS are advancing to round two and they'll be getting, and they probably have already received their TPE notices. So, Um, We'll keep you posted on what's going on as the results of some of the TPEs that started earlier in the year get to be posted. So, uh, Emily, it's time to pull up our fun poll for today. And uh, I decided to have a little bit of fun here with our listeners and find out what your idea of a scary movie is. So, in anticipation of Halloween on Wednesday, what is your favorite scary movie? Check number one if it's the Amityville War. Number two if it's Jaws. Number three, Halloween. Number four, Poltergeist. Number five, Psycho. Number six, Rosemary's Baby. And number seven, Silence of the Lambs. I'm sure I missed a few. Let us know in the chat box if we missed your favorite movie. Chuck, I can't wait to see what scares our listeners.
1: Thanks, you very much. That was Monitor Money Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley. Nancy's the president and CEO for Nancy Beckley and & Associates. And as Nancy said, we're going to have the results of this fun Monitor Money listener survey later in the broadcast. And coming up at about nine minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from David Glazer and Mary Inman reporting live from London. And Marvin Mitchell and Dwayne Abbey. This is Monday. It's October the 29th, 2018, and we send our condolences to the Jewish community in the aftermath of Saturday's mass murder at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Squirrel Hill, Pennsylvania. This is Monitor Monday. Stand by.
0: Are you ready to sit for a HEMA's industry-regarded Certified Coding Specialist Physician-Based Exam? Well, don't sweat it. Ahema offers resources to prepare you to sit with confidence, to achieve your goals, and to grow in your career. The CCSP exam prep pairs on-demand webinars covering key domains with an interactive learning session, making it easy to prepare on your schedule. Gain access to additional study tips and a Q&A with a coding expert during the upcoming virtual learning session on December 19th. AHIMA encourages health information professionals to never stop learning or expanding their skills, and they are dedicated to offering you continuous support. Get all your exam prep materials at
1: ahimastore.org. We're back at a program note. There's a very important webcast that's coming your way about new RAC and TPE audits. These are the ones that can put your revenue at risk for inpatient rehabilitation facilities. It's coming your way Tuesday, November the 6th, and features a friend of this broadcast, Angie Phillips. Here now with the Monitor Monday Risky Business Report is David Glazer. David, good morning. What's risky? Good morning, Chuck. So First off, uh, next week I'll be reporting live from the HCCA Enforcement Conference
4: with whatever breaking news develops there. So, But today, I want to talk about a few stories about the need to be cynical. One of my white-collar colleagues got a call from a client whose son had been arrested for drug possession. The client called because he was arranging to bail out his son, and he wanted to line up a defense lawyer to handle the case. During the conversation, he indicated he was going to need to go soon because the DE agent would be arriving at the door to pick up the bail money. My colleague said, wait, they're coming to get the bail money at your house? Yes, the client replied. My colleague virtually screamed into the phone. This is a scam. DEE agents don't come to your house to pick up bail money. There was no arrested offspring, just a cunning con. Now, a New Yorker cartoon famously exclaimed on the Internet, no one knows you're a dog. But fake identities have been around much longer than the World Wide Web. You can't assume that someone is who they claim. Whether a person is picking up medical records, obtaining medical care, or claiming to validate your Medicare enrollment, taking steps to verify the identity of the per, you, you want to take steps to verify the identity of the person making the request. Twice, I've had clients contacted by someone falsely purporting to be a government agent. In one case, the person even left behind an authentic-looking business card. The scheme was detected only when I called the number on the card and discovered it was disconnected. So how do you verify the identity of someone? Well, obviously asking to see an ID, uh, and in the case of a government official, a badge is a good first step. I also encourage you to consider a second step. Call the person to verify their employment, but don't just call the number they give you. To drive this point home, let me share a story about a personal care attendant that I almost hired. She gave me a reference to call, purportedly a business. But it turns out the reference was actually to a friend who used caller ID to screen calls and answer with a business name when reference checks called. Now, as any Seinfeld fan knows, anyone can claim to be Vandalay Industries. If you want to figure out if someone works for the OIG, don't call the number they gave you. Look up the OIG's general number, call that number, and ask for the person. One final point, make sure these requests are extremely polite. You might even want to be apologetic as you make it. Longtime listeners may remember my story about the clients who sent representatives from the National Supplier Clearinghouse away, and as a result, lost their DME numbers. You're walking a fine line here, but you want to be sure to walk it. And actually, I lied. There are two final points. You don't want to be the person calling the OIG. That's an act best done by outside counsel. And if you want a laminated card listing some other tips for interacting with government agents, shoot me a quick email. So Chuck, speaking of lies, the Thompson Twins sing about how lies, lies, lies are going to get you. This is extra ironic, because while the Thompson Twins may be one of my favorite 80s groups, they are neither twins, nor are they named Thompson. When someone wants something from you, think about them. Because with a little bit of care, lies, lies, lies won't get you.
1: Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is the shareholder of the law firm of Fredrickson and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. There's an unusual False Claims Act settlement of $270 million, and it seems somewhat unusual. Here now to explain is whistleblower attorney Mary Inman. She's reporting live from London. Good morning, Mary.
5: Good morning, Chuck. In a press release issued on October 1st, DOJ announced that DaVita has agreed to pay the United States $270 million to settle a False Claims Act lawsuit alleging that one of DaVita's subsidiaries, a provider group called Healthcare Partners submitted or caused the submittal of inaccurate diagnosis codes to the Medicare Advantage program, thereby improperly increasing the amount of money received from CMS. This is DeVita's third False Claims Act settlement of over $50 million since 2014. First, a quick overview of the Medicare Advantage program and risk adjustment to put this case in context. Medicare Advantage, or Medicare Part C, is a program where individuals who are otherwise eligible for traditional Medicare can choose to be covered by a private insurer. CMS pays the private insurer premiums for taking risk off of the government's hands. How much premium CMS pays to an MA plan is determined by a beneficiary's demographics and his or her health status. For health status, certain diagnosis codes map to 79 hierarchical chronic conditions, or HCCs. Each HCC is a broad disease category that CMS has determined to be a pretty good predictor of future health care costs. The sicker the patient, the more CMS will pay the MA plan for insuring them. The demographic factors, as well as the HCCs, have coefficients assigned to them. Those coefficients are added up to result in a risk score. A risk score is then multiplied by what an MA plan bids to cover a hypothetical average risk beneficiary, and that amount of money is paid to the MAO in monthly installments. But Healthcare Partners, HCP, is not an insurer or an MAO. It is a provider group. Medicare Advantage organizations often contract directly with providers to care for their beneficiaries. The providers generate the diagnoses that MAOs submit to Medicare to receive payments from CMS. Often, these providers enter into what are referred to as capitation arrangements with the MAOs. Under these arrangements, instead of paying the providers on a fee-for-service basis, MAOs share some percentage of their MA revenue to compensate the provider group. Healthcare Partners, slash HCP, was in several such arrangements with MA plans. DaVita disclosed to the government that several physician practices at HCP caused MAOs to submit incorrect data to CMS, boosting revenue for both the MAO and DaVita, slash HCP. Additionally, this settlement resolved allegations brought by a whistleblower, James Swobin, that HCP was doing one-way chart reviews of their patients' files. In other words, the company was reviewing files for diagnoses to submit to CMS for extra revenue, but when these reviews revealed erroneously coded diagnoses, HCP did not have them deleted from MAO submissions to CMS. Mr. Swobin will receive an award of just under $11 million for initiating the successful whistleblower lawsuit on the government's behalf. There are two main takeaways from this case. First, the government is taking data accuracy issues in Medicare Advantage very seriously and pursuing allegations vigorously. This is evidence this is evident by the case against United Health Group, which is coincidentally currently acquiring HCP for its own alleged one-way chart review practices. Second, the fact that the government is going after a provider group as opposed to a Medicare Advantage organization shows that the government's efforts to clean up the data accuracy issues in the Part C context are broadening, and all entities in this system, not just MAOs, should be on notice that the inaccurate submission of diagnosis data can result in grave consequences. Back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks very, very much. That was Mary Idman. Mary was reporting live from London. Mary is a partner in the law firm of Constantine Cannon. Mary is also a member of the Rec Monitor editorial board. Do you have a plan to ensure the proper discharge of homeless patients? California might have a solution. And we have the story. Here now with the details is Marvin Mitchell. He's reporting live from California. Good morning, Marvin. Good morning, Chuck. California's governor just signed into law
6: Senate Bill 1152 mandating uh, that hospitals create special inpatient discharge planning policies and procedures for the homeless patients to include interventions specific to the homeless. Failure to comply is a crime. Proponents of the law say hospitals brought this on themselves. This has some merit. Patients have been dumped on the streets, far from home, where you know, from where they call home, hungry and without adequate clothing. Will SB 1152 have national implications? Will other states follow? Yeah, probably. The homeless are, you know, po- homeless population management rather is as great a challenge as reducing readmissions for COPD and CHF and just as important. The law's demands, though, are largely met if a hospital carefully adheres to the Medicare conditions of participation for inpatient discharge planning, doing what we should be doing anyway. The law indeed closely follows the COP with additional requirements. Here's a quick summary of the law's added demands. Connect the homeless person to primary care if insured. Otherwise, work to get the person on Medi Cal. If ineligible, direct the person to providers like county clinics, providing primary care to Title 19 eligibles. Connect the person to mental health providers. Provide assistance in obtaining supply of medications. Provide transportation where the person identifies as home up to 30 miles and it's far. It's a miracle how far from home people can go. So, you're also supposed to offer and refer to the patient to social services and shelter. If said services are outside the county, permission must be obtained from these service organizations. As to shelters, the hospital must first verify their ability to accept the patient. A meal and weather appropriate clothing must be provided. Finally, a log must be kept of all homeless discharges to enable enforcement. Now, regular regulatory guidance that's come out so far appears to be more liberal, especially if the person already receives services in another county, or there are no local services exist. The state insists that the law is not intended to prolong discharge. Yeah, there are barriers, sure. Healthcare organizations need something to work with. There are few community resources, public or private, and the cost will be huge. The law provides no funding, relying on a fiction that hospitals have abundant benevolence funds and excess cash from revenues. On the other hand, individual homeless do have resources. Many have incomes. In California, a Medicaid expansion state, many are insured. Most have family or friends interested to varying degrees. Adult protective services can uh, help get the mentally ill patient in an LPS conservatorship. There are county clinics and FQHCs. Varying by county by county, government-run mental health services are available. Often the person is already connected. In my home state of Arizona, another Medicaid expansion state, county and FQHC clinics together with a regional behavioral health authority, got more mentally ill people off the streets. Leverage all the patients' resources. Here in SoCal's inland empire, we have formed a regional alliance, a collaboration for sharing resource information and forming a regional plan of action. Make do with everything available. Doing nothing is not an option. Now Back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks, Marvin, very much. That was Marvin Mitchell. Marvin is the Director of Case Management and Social Services. at is Hank Memorial Hospital, East of Los Angeles. CMS is expected to release its final rule concerning provider-based clinics early in November. The pros changes are expected to impact compliance and reimbursement. Reporting this about big story is author, educator, and consultant, Professor Dwayne Abbott. Good morning, Dwayne. Tell us a little bit about this and also give us a preview on your upcoming webcast.
7: Yeah, we're going to be talking about provider-based clinics, more specifically uh, Section 603 clinics that uh, came into existence because of the IBA 2015. Now, this is a complex area, so everybody uh, take your time when you're reading about this uh, and uh, make sure that you understand the exact context of your uh discussion or studies. Uh, The basic idea is that over time, off-campus at least for the time being, off-campus provider-based clinics eventually will be paid under the Medicare physician fee schedule. Now there are two uh, different perspectives you need to take. Uh, Number one is a long-term perspective, ten years maybe more uh, I don't know how long this process is going to take, but it probably will take a number of years. Now, in the meantime, uh, if we we'll go out one, two, three years, we can uh, expect some interim activity. And that's exactly what is happening at this point. Now, CMS has developed this series of service lines. So that uh, at least the proposal will have to wait and see what the final uh, uh, the final rule says, but it will come in time. but uh, what we have to do is to look at those service lines because if you start a quote new service line, then that uh, new service line, even if provided at an off campus exempted, i.e. non-section 603 clinic, it will be subject to the reduced payment solely under the Medicare Physician Fee Schedule. All right, now it's going to take a little bit of time for this to soak in because we have <clears throat> these service lines What's new? How many of them are there? How do you establish that you uh, weren't providing that service earlier, et cetera? There are a lot of questions that need to be asked and answered uh, before we can possibly implement uh, this kind of a payment process. Now, it's interesting that uh, CMS is concerned about new service lines, but they don't seem to be concerned about increasing the capacity of a current service line. So that's something else that they may also want to look at. Now, we should have uh, at least uh, a temporary answer uh, in the upcoming uh, OPPS Federal Register. Now, in the meantime, we've got a payment problem because, in theory, the uh, non-exempted clinics are to be paid under the medicare physician fee schedule well if you uh, remember correctly starting in 2015 at the very beginning uh, CMS did away with the E&M levels for hospital visits Uh, we have one code G0463 and then at the very end of the year BIBA 2015 came into existence And that was the exact time that we really needed to have those E&M codes, okay? So uh, in some sense, uh, CMS has done it to themselves. So the question is, well, how is payment to be effected? Well, CMS's solution is to, number one, pay the professional component under RBRVS, and then to come back and use a proxy percentage okay uh, for uh, the facility component which they are setting or at least they propose to set at forty percent. Uh, if you look at these statistical analyses uh, uh, supporting this, uh, you will probably be disappointed. So everybody stand by. Uh, we're going to discuss this in much greater detail at the end of November. All right, back to you Chuck.
1: Thanks Dwayne very much. That was Professor Dwayne Abbey. Doctor Abbey is the president of Abbey and Abbey Consulting Name's Iowa and by the way, be sure to register now to attend his webcast on provider based clinics. It's coming your way November the twenty eighth. Now the time for the Monitor Money Listener survey. Once again, here's Nancy Beckley. Nancy.
3: Well, hello, Chuck. And here we are back again. And I know yesterday you confided in me that Cycle was your favorite scary movie, as it is mine. So we're now seeing the survey here. We have 8% at the Amityville 4, 12% for Jaws 6. 15 percent at Halloween, 9% at Poltergeist. Chuck, we're in the 8% group with Psycho, 6% Rosemary's Baby, and look at that. Silence of the Lambs at 37%. Have a great Halloween, everybody. Chuck?
1: Thanks, Nancy, very much. David, uh, take one question, and then we'll call it wraps, okay? You bet. Um, So this question is uh, for you, Nancy
4: which is uh, what percentage of noncompliance leads to the additional round in the TPE process?
3: CMS, as reported on all of my uh, reports the past couple of weeks, has defined the categories as minor, moderate, and significant. In my report this morning, CGS has defined minor as 0 to 25, moderate as 26 to 50, and significant as 51 to 100. I'm not clear if that's a CMS standard or a max standard, so I suggest everyone take a look at their Max TPE website.
1: Thanks so much, Nancy, and back to you, Chuck. Have a great week. Thanks, David, and thank you, Nancy, very much. A number of questions did come in. We're going to make every effort to answer those questions offline, but that's going to be a wrap for us, and I want to thank you very much for being with us today. Special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Dr. Dwayne Abbey, Nancy Beckley, David Glazer, Dr. Ron Hurst, Mary Inman, calling in live from London, and Marvin Mitchell. We thank you very much for starting off your week with us. I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Thank you again for being with us. Have a great week, everyone.
0: Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.